All right, let's stand together and open to Psalm 1 if you're not there. Let's do something different. Let's read it together. If you have your ESV, let's read it out loud together. So here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, thank you again for this time. Now, by the Spirit's help, illuminate this text and apply it to each heart. We pray for your glory and our good. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat. There's a young boy who wanted to earn money to get a bike. And so he was going door to door, neighbor to neighbor, finding no success as he endeavored to do anything to make a few bucks. Well, after a few hours that morning, as the sun was coming out, it was getting hotter, he realized he was going to have to knock on the grumpy old lady's door at some point. And sure enough, he makes his way to her house last, knocks on the door, and the grumpy, angry old lady comes to the door, scowling at him. What do you want? And so he looked up at her and said, ma'am, I'll do whatever you need me to do. I'm trying to make some money to get a bike. And she, for the first time he had ever seen, her face lit up with a smile. She was excited to make this poor little boy do this incredibly difficult task. And so she said to him, well, here's what I'll do. I'll give you $5 if you will paint my porch bright yellow. She then hands him a five-gallon um, you know, bucket of paint. And so this little boy, you know, okay. And so he's dragging the paint around back. The heat of the day, uh, hours later, the boy comes back to the door and she opens again, almost, almost laughing, suppressing a, a laugh. Uh, the boy was covered in bright canary yellow paint from head to toe. And uh, he said, boy, ma'am, that was a lot of work for $5. And she said, well, good job. Here you go. And she gave him a $5 bill and uh, proceeded to go back to her grumpy self. Well, as he starts walking away across the front yard, he turned back and he said, oh, by the way, ma'am, you have a Mercedes, not a Porsche. <laughs> so like this boy, if we don't have the right information, <laughs> we may find ourselves doing a lot of work, a lot of energy in vain. And so in the second session, we're going to look at the result of what our lives will yield, what they will produce if we're not resolved versus when we are, if we plant ourselves in the Lord and we're rooted. So the second session, we're titling The Rooted Man. And in verses 3 and 4, what we're going to look at here, we have a contrast between the righteous and the wicked and the result of verses 1 and 2, what we just studied of protecting ourselves from wicked influences and then pursuing God's word. And the result is found in verse 3. And what we're going to see is a simile, uh, a metaphor with the word like. 
So look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And then we have verse 4. In the NIV, it reads this way, not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. So we've just read and studied these first two verses that show us that we're to, we're to stand guard against uh, walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, seating ourselves among the scoffers. Uh, we're to delight in God's word and we're to meditate on it. And this life of consistent conduct, constant delight, quality character, even when threatened or tempted to give up or give in, will produce something in us and through us. Now, that is about to be put off to one side, and an opposite reaction, an opposite option, is about to step up to the plate. There is an alternate way to live your life, one that is contrary to God, one that is contrary to God's word, one that is far away from the rejuvenating stream of God's Holy Spirit. In a word, it's a life of unrighteousness. Remember, Psalm 1 is a song. It's a song meant to be sung. And you've watched movies, you've watched horror movies where there's a certain scene where the music changes to a dark and ominous tone. You know those movies, you're, at least my wife, she will grab my arm and lean in a little bit closer. I actually kind of like those scenes, if you, if you are honest. But the major key morphs into the minor key. And that's what may have happened on the harp, that the harp's being played and suddenly the major key turns into a dark, ominous minor key when we get to verse four. The wicked are not so. The wicked man does not do what the resolved rooted man does. He does not guard his heart. He does not love or abide in scripture. Thus, he is unable to produce the life of fruit because he's disconnected from the vine. He's disconnected from God. So we're going to contrast the righteous and the wicked in this session, and we're going to look at three things the rooted man has in his life. So if you're taking note, number one, the rooted man, his life, number one, has substance. Notice the simile in verse three. He is like what? What is he like, man? He's like a tree. It's a tree that's not any tree. It's a tree that's planted next to a stream of refreshing water. Now, King David here is referring to a, a specific type of cultivation, agrarian method, where in the Middle East, the farmer would direct streams of water to flow between a set or a row of trees. And so the idea, if you've been to the Middle East, I've been to Bahrain, and the idea, did you, were you impressed with the H that I did there, the, the Bahrain? Like Bernard, the H is silent, right? Am I right? Bernard, not Bernhard, right? So Bahrain. Uh, and I've been there, and they actually have a place in uh, Bahrain called the Tree of Life, and it's in the middle of sand. It's in the middle of the desert. So uh, there is a specific way that you would, through outside nourishment, and that's the key, outside nourishment, you would bring water in, divert the flow to bring in a constant stream of moisture, and so there's a basic application here, and that is that we as men of resolve and men who are rooted cannot produce in ourselves living water. We need to have the Spirit of God within us, as Jesus said in John 7, that the Spirit would produce living water that flows from within us. We need an outside resource. The rooted man is like a tree, not just any tree, but a tree planted 
by streams of water in a place where he'll receive constant and plentiful nourishment because the world around him threatens to produce drought and decay. I'd love for you guys to jot down John 15. John 15, uh, one of the I am statements, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are what? You are the branches. Good job, Pastor Nate. All right, you are the branches. We must abide in him and when we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. But notice that in John 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you won't bear fruit. In fact, you can do nothing. Now, someone in the back might say, well, hold on, Pastor. Uh, I can do, and hold on, Jesus, I can do quite a lot with my life. Uh, Apart from me, you can do nothing. I've done quite a bit of things in my life. But when Jesus says you can do nothing, what he means is, He's not saying you won't do things, you won't do a flurry of activity, you won't paint the wrong thing yellow and spend all day in the heat, but you're not going to, in the end, do work that amounts to anything in eternity. So apart from me, you can do nothing. A life of substance doesn't also mean that we just push fruit out of our lives. Have you ever walked by a fruit tree? We have some orange trees in Florida. Uh, Actually, Tropicana is based in the town that I live in, in Bradenton. And I've never walked by a row of fruit trees and just heard them going, oh, never seen that. Because they're tapped into the water supply and the natural result of a healthy tree is it produces fruit. So we don't strain hard. We don't produce fruit because we're awesome or we've been a Christian a longer amount of time necessarily. No, faithfulness and fruitfulness come by abiding in the vine. I hadn't planned on sharing this originally but because um, it's a little bit personal, but our toilets um, last week backed up, uh, every toilet. And so uh, the toilets are backing up into the shower, into the house, and much to my wife's delight, into our bedroom. So the, the sewage is coming and flowing into the bedroom. And uh, of course, I did what every uh, real man does. I called the plumber. <laughs> and so... Um, Of course, um, you know, like every man, he comes in, he's the expert, but then I offer him advice, you know, so (laughs) he comes in, I'm like, "Uh, you might want to, you might want to check, and so I'm throwing out my advice, and and of course, you know, because I'm the expert, that's why I called him, and uh, and so he just says to me, you have a backup, and I was like, thank you, Captain Obvious, (laughs) Um, (laughs) and so what he said was, um, you know, he went to snake it, and he said, what happened is the the roots of your pepper tree in the yard have, have hindered, or no, the word he said was they've interfered. The, the roots of the pepper tree have interfered with your sewage line. What a, what, a, what a wimpy way of saying it. They've interfered with my sewage line. Now, if you don't know anything about pepper trees, they are the tools of Satan meant to bring evil into this world. Okay? If, you, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, then you, if you know, you know. Uh, and so, and I also didn't like the way the, the plumber said your pepper tree, as if I have a relationship with this pepper tree. Like I moved into the house and the, the bane of Satan happened to live there when I moved in. It was wreaking havoc and sabotaging my sewage underground. So it took him several hours. He removes all the roots from the pepper tree. And when he did, I was amazed at two things. First, the size of the roots, but secondly, um, how much they were surrounding the sewage pipe. And so I took a picture to share with you. Do you see how small? That sewage pipe is six inches wide. That's how big the roots, they, were, they weren't interfering. They, they were completely taken over um, the sewage. And so um, 
You know, I was texting my wife last night, hey, I love you, and, uh, and I miss you, and I was expecting back, like, I miss you too, I hope the men's conference goes great, you're, you're, my, you're my man. Uh, and no, she just texted me and said, you left the root in the yard. <laughs> now, don't, don't lose me, I, I'm not telling you that story because we're tapped into sewage, okay, that's not the idea. Um, the idea is that we cannot live a fruitful life of substance if we're disconnected from the water supply. That tree was feeding off of our sewage, so to speak. And you and I, we must be connected. We must abide in the vine. We don't conjure up or produce fruit in ourselves. If you've been walking with Christ for any number of years or decades, I pray that you're not just coasting on the things that God did in the Jesus movement in the 70s. It was a wondrous time. I'm a result of that from my parents' faith. A wondrous time. But we can't just coast and say those were great times back then. Neither if you were born again at a summer camp or you were baptized and there was just a wonderful time of, of you know, your teen years or 17, 18. Man, that was a time God was doing something fresh and I really was, was on fire for Christ. We can't just coast and say, well, you know, I, I started off strong and, and God's just been faithful through the years. No, our lives apart from the nourishment of the word of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the supremacy of Christ, they'll become as fruitful and healthy as a tree disconnected from a water supply. It's only a matter of time before we dry up and wither. So this man, this rooted man, his life has substance because he's connected to water. But secondly, if you're taking note, not only does it have substance, his life secondly has seasons. Notice the rest of verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In fact, all that he does in all that he does, he prospers. So because this man is rooted in the Lord, like a well-watered tree, it doesn't matter what season or seasons he may endure. In a fruitful season, he produces fruit. In a harsh season, he doesn't wither away. In every season, he's prosperous. Now, in Florida, we have two seasons. We have hot and stinking hot. It is humid. We have the type of humidity where you walk outside. I don't know if you have this in Monterey, but you walk outside, and, and even in the shade, you immediately break into sweat. And so it doesn't matter uh, what you're wearing. You just immediately sweat through your clothing. But in the rest of the country, you have your glorious, distinct seasons. You have winter, spring, summer, and fall. We have summer and summer. Um, and so each season... Uh, of life, so to speak, brings with it a unique set of challenges and opportunities. So we have spring. Spring, of course, is a time when flowers bloom, when new life is erupting, and the pollen keeps half of us in bed. It's a time of, of newness. And then there's summer, and summer can bring flourishing, but summer can it also bring drought. I find it's interesting, there's always summer after spring. It's true in life. After a time of, of blessing and growth, there's a time of testing. And then there's fall. Fall is a season where the leaves wither, the leaves die, and great loss is felt. And then, of course, there's winter. Yes, winter brings the cold, but did you know, it's fascinating, um, uh, botanists point out that plants are not as successful in the spring uh, in their flowering if they're not exposed to colder extremes during the winter. The winter seems to snap the plants alive or the tree alive to eventually blossom in a new season of flourishing. 
And so notice with me that he's like a tree that yields its fruit in whatever season it's in. In all things, he prospers. So men, I wonder what season you are in as you've arrived this weekend at the conference. Is it a season right now of excitement, of newness, of flourishing? Maybe this is a spring for you. Maybe for some of you, it's a season of fall. It's a fail season, a season of failure, of loss, of discouragement. Uh, Maybe it's a time of trial, the heat of summer, and you're uh, experiencing a spiritual drought in your soul. And maybe for some of you, it's like winter, a long and dark uh, period where your love for God has grown cold. You know, fruit doesn't always mature in the same way and at the same time. For some of us, it grows when our lives are blessed and we're producing fruit. For others, many more of us, we produce fruit in the season of suffering. But listen, if we're only rooted in the Lord when times are good, when it's a season of excitement, a season of blessing, hashtag blessed, if we're only rooted in him because of something he does for us or because he gives something to us, then we're not going to have leaves that stay alive. I love the parable of the sower in uh, Matthew 13. In fact, can we hold our places in Psalm 1 and just go over to Matthew 13? If you would, turn with me to Matthew 13. Uh, This, as you're turning there to set this up, uh, we're going to start in verse 19. But Jesus has just told the parable of the sower, and his attentive disciples are trying to understand what he means. Uh, To some, he would speak in parables so that they would ever hear but never truly perceive. Uh, Much of uh, national Israel didn't get it, but... His disciples also were trying to understand it. So um, he explains in verse 19 what's going on. So I think we have it on the screen. There's a sower that sowed seed, and it fell in four different places. It fell on the path, it fell on the rocks, it fell among the thorns, and then it fell among good soil. So look at verse 19 with me. Jesus says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, among the rocks, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, that's a key phrase there, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but he's American. (laughs) The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So just... Stay with me for a minute. Keep your eyes in the text. So the, the, the word of God goes out, and there's different men who receive it. The one who's like the path, he doesn't understand the gospel. And so he's deceived away from it. We see that a lot in the world today. Doesn't understand the gospel, and so the false gospel comes in, false prosperity or false teaching comes in, and it, it, it causes him to uh, be snatched away. Uh, He's the man on the path. Then there's the man on the rocks in verse 20, the rocky ground. This man has no root. And so the word is shared, but he falls away when tested. Then we have the thorns. And and I joked when I said uh, America in verse 22. uh, But the idea is that the, the, the 
root begins to grow some fruit, but it's choked by the cares of this world and the lure of wealth. And then Jesus says in verse 23 that there is good soil. Someone hears the word, they understand the word, and they begin to bear fruit because of the gospel. Now, in each one of these cases, if you notice with me, the word was scattered. The word was deposited. Each of these men heard the word preached to them. To bring it to our day, they may have heard a man preaching on a street corner. They may have watched a sermon sent to them on YouTube. They may have been invited on a Sunday to sit in a church gathering. They may have watched an online gathering. They may have been invited to a men's conference like we're doing today. But the word was not understood. It wasn't able to take root. uh, Or this man was unable to avoid the distractions of this life and bear any fruit. But the rooted man, he took the time. No matter what season he found himself in, he took the time to uh, understand the word and to allow it to bear fruit. He bears the fruit of the spirit when life is good. He bears the fruit of the spirit when life falls apart. In time of testing, in time of blessing, his leaf, or you could say his witness, does not wither. So go back with me to Psalm chapter 1. I just wanted to take that little side trail to see that the Word of God is doing something in hearts, and and often we will hear it, and we just move on without truly taking the time to understand it and to allow it to saturate us like Psalm 1 verse 2 tells us to do, to meditate on it. Now, in verse 3, when he says, in all that he does, he prospers, this does not mean, men, that we're to go buy lottery tickets and every time we are going to win. John Piper says to prosper actually means to live a life that's not in vain. Uh, To live a life that you're succeeding in God's good purposes, not only in this life, but into eternity. And we're going to see why that's important in this third point. So not only is his a life of substance, not only is his a life uh, of bearing different seasons, but thirdly, his life has significance. And I want to camp out here for the rest of our time. Um, if you look at verse 4, he says, the wicked are not so. But the wicked are also like something. They're not like a tree that is firmly planted and that's well watered and is producing fruit. Notice what he says. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. So they're not a strong, vibrant tree. They are chaff. Now, what's chaff? Chaff is actually the husk or the hole that surrounds a nut or a kernel of wheat. And it seems on the outside pretty strong. Oh, that's putting up a, some resistance. That's a strong husk. But once you remove uh, the nut or the wheat out from the husk, out from the chaff, it's actually very frail and very light. It's a lightweight. It's, it's insubstantial. So Israel would often, uh, they, would, they would winnow the wheat on the threshing floor on an elevated place because the wind could easily as you kind of throw the wheat up in the air as you've been winnowing it, the, the chaff just gets literally blown away by the wind. Now, we don't do that today. I don't know. Is anyone here a wheat farmer? I don't know if you're... you're okay, yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, and so that doesn't really relate, doesn't kind of... Uh, it's not as relevant. And so um, how many of you have been to, like, uh, Five Guys? Have you been to Five Guys? Do they have that here? Or Texas Roadhouse? Do you guys have a Texas Roadhouse? Oh, you need one. Yeah, they're awesome. Um, Anywhere where you can go and they start breaking into line dancing in the middle of eating is, is a win for me. So, uh, so at both of those restaurants, they offer you salted peanuts while you're waiting for your table. 
Uh, five Guys, you don't really wait for tables, but they still have them there, obligatory. So um, the idea, though, when you eat a peanut is you crack open the peanut. You're not a caveman who just grabs a bunch of peanuts and <laughs> just start crunching away, right? You, 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 what, what do you have to do? You have to crack open the shell, and then you remove the peanuts, you eat that. You, what do you do with the shell? Uh, it was really awkward for me the first time I was at Texas Roadhouse, but the idea, at least in Florida, is you just throw the shell on the floor. I'm like, man, th- what sort of, of, what are we doing here? Right? We're just, just tossing the, like, yep, I just did that. You know, come pick it up, come clean it up. Um, and so the shell is, if you would, the husk. It's the chaff. No nutritional value. It, it adds nothing to uh, the resource of the peanut. It's just the outside protective barrier. It's garbage. It's thrown away. Um, speaking of Texas, I actually read in some places um, that the chaff of rice is used to fire furnaces, which produce electricity. I thought that was interesting. Sobering thought. That's what the life of unrighteousness produces. It produces, he says, they are like the chaff that the wind just blows away. In other words, they're insignificant. Spurgeon says that chaff is, listen to this, intrinsically worthless, dead, unserviceable, without substance, and easily carried away. God is saying that is the wicked. The wicked who gives into temptation, who gives into godly counsel, who's not rooted in the word of God, is still busy wasting away in a life that will have no lasting significance in the world for God's glory. They are like chaff. In fact, listen to these words in a parallel text in Jeremiah 17. Incredibly convicting. Jeremiah 17 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Cursed. And then he has a simile as well. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Wow. I mean, that's quite a bit different than the rooted man, isn't it? This guy's a shrub. Now, it doesn't take a genius or a botanist to know that a shrub is a lot lower in stature than a tall tree. Which would I rather be, a tree or a shrub, right? A man whose heart turns away from the Lord is one who is like a shrub in the desert. They're not dwelling by streams of water, but they're dwelling in the parched places of the wilderness. And if there is any water, it's not refreshing water because it's laden with salt. So just for a minute, listen to these words of indictment against those who rebel against God in Job 24. Listen to these words. Uh, Job 24 says, There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways, and do not stay in its paths. And so there are those who rebel, they, they don't even know the way of God, they don't stay in the path of God. And then he mentions the thief, the adulterer, and those who actually mistreat women. And he says in verse 20 about these men, the womb forgets them, the worm finds them sweet, and they are no longer remembered. And then in Job 24, 24, he says this about the wicked, they're exalted a little while, but then they're gone. They're brought low and gathered up like all others. They're cut off like the heads of grain. Isn't that interesting? They're exalted for a little while, but then they're gone. Gathered up just like all the others. Now, names mean a lot to us, I know, as men. 
Some of us, we hear about a name and we go, that's the, that's the name I want to have. I wanna, my name means a lot to me or I want to I wanna follow that guy. That's a name of, of, uh, of consequence or significance. I want to I live a life and have that sort of name. There's names that we recognize, names uh, of people who in this world are exalted, names like Elon Musk or Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs or Albert Einstein. Uh, these are names that can invoke at least recognition for doing something. Or any of the presidents, any of the popes, any of the politicians or Nobel Prize winners. You look up Time's Person of the Year, and we go, that's someone who has been exalted, but they're exalted for a little while. These names are lifted up, and yet they're eventually brought low and gathered up like all the others. Now, you here this morning may be seeking to build a great name. Someone's alarm's going off for sure. It's your time right now. You want to be remembered for something noble, maybe even world-changing. I grew up in the 90s, um, and everyone was telling me it's time to be a world-changer. Anybody remember that in youth group? Every youth group message was like uh, Romans 12.2. It was like, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed. You're going to be a world-changer. Don't let the world change you. And we were told uh, you know, to get out there and, and, and just do something big for God. Go for it. Uh, and... A lot of us have that, still that ambition. I, I got to do something. I got to change the world. I want to, and that's not a bad thing. That's a noble thing. But did you guys know King Solomon had, in some ways, the same ambition? And in fact, Solomon had the means of doing it. He had so much wealth that he could not be compared to anyone before him or anyone after. He ended up becoming the wisest, richest man in all of human history. And so just think for a minute. Let's do a quick exercise. Think of all the wealth that you make in a year. So your annual salary, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you, you know, work. Uh, so let's just quickly, in your head, don't yell it out to me, uh, but just think, what is my annual salary? Now multiply that by 50. So multiply that by or 40 or 50, however long you work in a lifetime. That's your lifetime amount of income. And now we're gonna add it up in this room. So all of us together, our entire lifetimes, the salary that we have made, we're most likely in the hundreds of millions. I mean, this is Monterey, California after all, right? <laughs> You're like, oh, no, that's not what I make. Okay, so yeah, all the money that we have seen in our entire lives collectively, Solomon calls that a slow Tuesday. Uh, and so at the end of his life, it was believed that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes and here's what he said. He says in Ecclesiastes, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. And it's a striving after the wind. It's, it's a striving. There's work. There's effort. There's ambition. But in the end, if it's apart from the purposes of God, then it's vanity. It doesn't matter what we seek after. It can be noble things. But if we seek not after Jesus, his kingdom, his righteousness, right? If we do first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things are added to us. But if we choose not to, then one day it may be too late. We find ourselves looking back and we say, wait, I've spent my entire life leaning my ladder on the wrong wall. I, I look back at the end of my life and I go, my life has just been a dried up shrub, not a flourishing tree. You see, the rooted righteous man 
looks a lot like a stable fruit-bearing tree near a generous water supply that allows it to withstand the wind and the seasons of life. I have a question for you. It wasn't in my notes, but what, what was your reaction to the pandemic? What was your personal reaction? Was it to flock to fear, to anxiety, to drink? They said that alcoholism has uh, grown, I think, like seven times in the last two years. Alcohol sales continue to rise. Is that what happened? We found ourselves just overwhelmed by life. And so we ran not to what can help us withstand the seasons of life, but we ran to things that continued to lead us away from the Lord. The rooted righteous man is stable. The wicked unrighteous man doesn't look like a tree. He looks like a forgotten shell that even the wind can just blow away. And the world might say, that's an impressive life. But in reality, it's desolate. Who do we want to be, men? We want to be men who are planted by streams of water. We want to be rooted men. Uh, In fact, while you have your Bibles in Psalms, just look over with me very quickly at Psalm 119. There's two passages that encourage me from Psalm 119, verse 9 and verse 11. Verse 9 in Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? How? How can I live a pure life? By guarding it according to your word. And then verse 11. And really, we can't skip verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. And then verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what we saw in the last session. Storing up the word of God so that when temptation, when trials come, we're able to stand. The righteous rooted man is like a tree who will yield its fruit in its season. He's a life of substance, a life of seasons, and a life which will have significance in eternity. Years ago, a Bible teacher was addressing a gathering of Jews and Arabs in Palestine. And he took the subject of his address, the first psalm. He read Psalm 1 as we just did. You guys just read it out loud. And he then asked the question, who is the blessed man? that Psalm 1 describes. Who is it? This man never walked in the counsel of the wicked. He never stood in the path of sinners. He never sat in the seat of mockers. This man was an absolutely sinless man. Who was he? And of course, this group of Jews and, uh, and Arabs uh, were curious. Who was it? And finally, the speaker said, was this our great father Abraham? And one of the Jews said quietly from the back, no, 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 it cannot be Abraham. He denied his wife. He told a lie about her. He sinned. And the speaker said, well, how about the lawgiver, Moses? And someone from the front said, it can't be Moses. Uh, Moses killed a man. Moses lost his temper. He struck the rock when he shouldn't have at the waters of Meribah. And so the group started getting restless. Who, who, who is this man? And the speaker said, what about David? And of course, everyone said, oh, it wasn't David. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was silence for a long time. And finally, an elderly Jew arose and said, my brothers, I have a little book here. It's called the New Testament. And I've been reading it. And if I could believe this book, I could be sure that the man of Psalm 1 is Jesus of Nazareth. You see, men, who is the blessed man? 
Who is the man who is like a tree planted by streams of water? Uh, the one who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly? The one who didn't just not stand in the way of sinners, but became one of us? Now, who's that perfect man? The truly blessed man is Jesus Christ. And we're looking to Jesus this weekend. Again, not for you to produce today in your own strength, but that you would abide in the vine. That you would say, Lord, would you allow your righteousness to produce righteousness in me? Lord, would you please work obedience, your obedience, would you work that obedience in me? Lord Jesus, that kindness, would you work that kindness in me? Lord, that humility, would you work that in me because I'm a proud man? Lord, would you work that love for others, the love that's willing to lay down life for friends? Lord, would you work that love in me? Uh, that's what we're looking for, and that's who we're looking to this weekend. Before we close this session, I want to challenge each of us to consider what our lives will ultimately look like in the end. I want to do just an exercise for a minute. I want you to consider, just for a moment, uh, it is your funeral. And there are people standing around, and they are recounting your life. My uh, grandmother just passed away, and we had a, uh, just an off, awesome time uh, coming together and just remembering her. So I just want you for a minute to think about who's going to be there, and what words are they going to say? What words would you like them to say about you? As they recount the life that you live, uh, what sort of phrases do you want to be said about you? See, my prayer for us this weekend is that the Lord would work repentance and faith in such a way that if we were living our life a certain way, that he would redirect us to live for his glory, for his purposes, for his honor. As you guys use this phrase, for his fame. There were two men you may not have heard of by the name of John Leonard Dober and David Nietzsche. Some people have heard of these men. They lived in the 1700s. And uh, they were uh, Moravian. They were a, a part of a church movement that was uh, big in the modern missions movement of taking the gospel to where Christ had not yet been named. And these two young men in their church heard about a, an island in the Caribbean where an atheist British owner of slaves had two to 3,000 African slaves. And the owner had brazenly declared, no preacher, no clergyman will ever come to my island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house from the slaves until he has to leave, but he will never tell any of us about God. I'm through with that nonsense. So can you imagine that? 3,000 slaves brought to an island in the Atlantic there to live and work and die and never hear about the person and work of Christ. So these two young men, Dober and Nietzsche, were cut to the heart when they heard about their plight. But what, what do you do? Like many of us looking at Ukraine, what can I do? I feel helpless. I can pray. Maybe I can send some support, but what can I do? Well, these young men in prayer came to the conclusion that we can reach the slaves on the island with the gospel, not by going to preach to them because we're not allowed, but if we sell ourselves into slavery, then we will be able to preach the gospel. And so these two young men actually did what we would say is impossible or unthinkable. They sold themselves as slaves to the British owner 
and they used the money that they received to pay for their voyage to the island. And as church history says, the ship was leaving its pier. These two young men were on the ship, and the rest of the church, their parents were there weeping, their families gathered to say goodbye. This was not a see you later. This was a farewell until eternity. And as the gap was widening on the, on the, the ship and the shore, uh, one of the two young men raised his hand, and he shouted the last words they had ever heard from these two young men. And he said, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. You see, our lives may not make a significant mark here on earth. You may have a last name that won't be written down in the history books, but your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name is written where it matters. Our lives may not resound here in a temporal way, but they will resound in eternity. Is this not, this story, is this not what Christ has done for us? That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. The one who traded the joys of heaven for the agonies of the cross. The one who redeemed us from our slavery by entering our humanity and bearing our sin. Man, I want to draw our attention to Jesus. If we would be willing this morning to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. From a human perspective, the world might say, what a waste. But from an eternal perspective. Even though the world would reject us and write us off, in God's economy, no life given to him is wasted. You see, God is fully accountable to make use of any and every life that has been laid down to serve and to follow him. God is responsible for those who offer their life in full surrender to him. He's responsible. It is a backwards kingdom. It's a backward economy. God allowed Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, that we, the sinner, might receive Christ's righteousness. Jesus, fully God, came from the highest place to the lowest place, the place of the servant, and he was crushed in the place that we deserved in order that we might be brought to the Father. Jesus brings mercy to those who don't deserve it. He pays the penalty through his death on the cross. The spotless lamb, think about that, was nailed to the cross for you. He took the punishment you and I deserved. So my prayer as we conclude this session is that we would be willing today to offer our lives afresh to him. To to live what the world might call, that's just a waste. Because when we give our lives and surrender to Jesus, it's not a waste, it's worship. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we want to be those men who are rooted in Christ and bear much fruit for the Father's glory. Not only in this life, but in all of eternity. Lord, we thank you that though the wicked are like chaff and will come and will go, they may have a name today, that name will be forgotten in 50 to 100 years. Maybe it won't, maybe it'll be remembered. But in eternity, there is a name, a name at which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will utter this phrase, Jesus is Lord. That's to the Father's glory. And that's because, Jesus, you thought it not robbery. As you were equal with the Father, you humbled yourself and became obedient to death. And not merely any death, but death on a cross. And because of that, the Father exalted Jesus to the highest place. And he's given you the name that is above every name. And so, Lord, as we seek to make a name for ourselves, much like 
those rebels at Babel. Lord, I pray that we would today, in this very moment, be willing to surrender our lives and to make you famous, that your name would be declared in our life, over our life, through our life. God, we pray that uh, one day as we meet these men in church history who made a mark in eternity, Lord, because they were willing to lay down their lives as you commanded us to in order to serve you. Lord, I pray that we in like manner may not be heard of here, but Lord, that we, with our names written in the Lamb's precious book of life, we would live a life and a name that resounds in eternity because it's your name. Uh, It's at your name that every knee will bow and tongue confess. So we thank you, Lord, for this. I pray that you would, uh, even now and in our final session, begin to, in a fresh way, allow us, by the Spirit's help, to let go of our ambition, to let go of our, our selfishness, our pride, and Lord, that we would today be named in Christ. So Lord, we thank you for all these things, and we ask you to continue working and speaking to us by your Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen.